For those of you who were uh, able to attend last week, we shared in the Sacrament of Holy Communion. And as many of you know, in the Christian tradition, we often express that as a celebration. And so normally I would have said uh, last week we celebrated the Sacrament of Holy Communion. Because of that language, uh, we normally use celebration. There is a, a school of thought in the Christian world that the sacrament should be a lot more lively and a lot more fun than it usually is. It should feel like a celebration. And I will admit that every now and then that idea strikes me and I do think, yeah, we should, we should liven things up uh, when we celebrate. I also joke uh, sometimes that we should be more culturally attuned in our um, sharing of the sacrament, more cult culturally attuned to our particular neighborhood. We are in Queen Anne, which is now a very wealthy neighborhood. So I've thought about how maybe we should uh, connect with McCarthy and Shearing wine merchants and feature a wine of the month. And, and then it could be paired with Macrina Bakery, a, a, a particular bread for that week. So uh, this month for the Lord's Supper, we will be featuring a Tuscan red with a rustic olive loaf. And we could advertise that in the beforehand. So anyway... Uh, often, though, when I, when I read or I hear someone speak about making Hol Holy Communion more celebratory, I can feel bad about how I usually lead our observance of the sacrament. However, uh, this morning's story from the book of Exodus reminds me why I keep coming back to a certain solemnity whenever we celebrate the sacrament. In our story this morning, we hear what the actions were that led to the Jewish celebration of Passover, to which our celebration of the Lord's Supper is intimately linked. The events of the Passover are what led to the entire nation of Israel being released from the horrible oppression of being enslaved in Egypt for generations. That freedom would certainly seem to be cause for dancing in the streets, just as Holy Communion, which speaks to us of the resurrection to new and lasting life in Jesus, also seems to be cause for dancing anywhere, anytime. But our story for this morning reminds us of the bigger picture within which this all took place both why the Israelites needed to be freed and the horrific cost of what it took to do so. Both Passover and Holy Communion, Communion remind us of a solemn truth. To fully appreciate God's salvation, we must at the same time acknowledge the human destruction that makes it necessary. Our story for this morning opens with this horrific news. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh 
who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Notice the totality of destruction from the most powerful household in the land, the Pharaoh, to the lowliest person in the land, the prisoner in the dungeon. Literally, it reads the prisoner in the pit house. That was often what the, the dungeon was. It was just a pit. This devastation struck every household from the highest to the lowest, literally. As well, it struck the firstborn of all livestock. One of the truths that we have seen revealed throughout this series on the Exodus is that all of creation is linked together. If humans are following the ways of God, all creation thrives. If we are not following the ways of God, all creation experiences death. In our story for this morning, we hear the impact of all of this death on Egypt. In verse 30, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. It is only after all of this destruction and because of all of this horror that Pharaoh finally relents and lets God's people free. In verse 31, we hear that he summons Moses and Aaron and says, okay, up, leave. You, the Israelites, also all your livestock, just as you have been asking, go. And again, we witness animals also benefiting from the freedom of human beings. In addition to the livestock being included in this exodus to the promised land, there's this odd little note uh, in verse 38, but I'll read 37 leading into it. Um, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot. And there's a, that's a wildly large number. If you include men and women, uh, I mean women and children, um, the estimates are about two to three million. Um, there, there are some uh, reasons that that might be the figure that was given, but anyway, it's a whole lot of folks, and it, the Israelites. They journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and then in 38, many other people went up with them as well as the large droves of animals. I like the way that the message translates this, actually. There was also a crowd of riffraff tagging along. For me, uh, as has been the case often in the past several weeks, especially of this uh, look at Exodus, the uh, Old Testament scholar Terence Freedom pulls some of these strands together. He writes that many non-Israelites had been integrated into the community of faith, and other communities no doubt took advantage of the opportunity to choose freedom. Freedom for Israel means freedom for others. When the people of God are liberated, not only their own kind can come along. 
The benefits of freedom have a fallout effect on all those with whom they come in contact, whether they are people of faith or not. The people of God are accompanied by great numbers of animals as well. Both animals and people are liberated. Freedom has an effect on more than human beings. This theme is sounded again and again in the scriptures. Israel's God is one who is about redeeming the entire creation. God's redemption is not for the chosen few. It is for the sake of the world. That is certainly cause for some sense of joy. And all of this, again, gets told within the context of instructions for the future commemoration of this event. And we hear it at the end of our scripture in verse 42, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come, for generations to come. And last week we heard about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and and the Passover and how to celebrate those things. All this takes place within that. The story of, but the story of the actual moment of release of enslavement is told within this context of instructions for future celebration. And that is exactly why, though, the celebration is a solemn one at heart. Human beings, we hear, we read this morning, human beings, mostly children and animals, died in order that the enslaved would be set free. And on top of all of that, our God is the one who did the killing. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh on the throne to the prisoner in the dungeon and all livestock. Again, Freedom writes, It helps but little to say that there was no suffering because it happened in the night when they were asleep. However much it is appropriate to speak of judgment and Pharaoh's genocidal decision to kill all Hebrew baby boys was made long ago, no reader can rejoice in the deaths of children. And the text does not back off from identifying the subject of this judgment, God smote all the firstborn in Egypt. My personal belief is that this destruction was so clearly attributed to, the, to an act of God in part so that the Israelites themselves would in no way be implicated as the ones who did this. This was clearly an act of God. The Israelites did not kill the Egyptians. Another scholar, Douglas Stewart, helps us understand why that is so important. He writes, this was not a case of returning evil for evil. It was a case of divine retribution, a judgment against an entire society and their beliefs that led them to practice the horrible treatment they had given the Israelites in the past. 
evil for evil would have been accomplished if the Israelites themselves had figured out a way to kill Egyptian babies after having come to a position of power over their former oppressors. God, not the Israelites, did this killing of the Egyptians' firstborn. I will say, as I have said before, I don't know why God did this, this way. I don't know why God couldn't have come up with some other way of having the Israelites gain their freedom, particularly some way that didn't involve the death of children. And there are people who will give answers to why, but none of them that I have ever read or heard actually feels good in the soul. But it was only after all of this devastation that Pharaoh and the Egyptians let the Israelites go free. This exodus from enslavement and journey to the promised land became the foundational act of God's salvation for all God's people in the Jewish faith from that time forward. And certainly, again, freedom from slavery to evil is cause for celebration. But it came at the cost of centuries of their own horror and suffering, and then another event of additional horror for the Egyptians. When we talk as Christians about Jesus as our Savior or salvation in Jesus Christ, we do so within the same context of human devastation. As Jesus himself is Jewish, the Exodus becomes part of our foundational understanding of God's salvation. In addition, Jesus' own act of salvation included his unjust arrest and trial, his beating and humiliation by government officials, his public execution by crucifixion. Jesus offers us freedom from oppression from all sorts of evil, both around us and within us, which is cause for both joy and thanksgiving, but it comes through great suffering. And I bring all of this up not to ruin the sacrament, not to spoil the fun, but rather to deepen the thanksgiving for the grace. We human beings, we cause so much devastation. And we do this through the systems. We create systems of power and control and consumption. But we do this as well as individuals in our relationships with others. And even we do this to ourselves. As we hear this story of Passover, we may rail at God calling out, why would you hurt children and those who love them? But think of all the children human actions hurt and kill. Think of all the animals we destroy and all of the destruction to God's creation. I have a friend who uh, once said to me something, it was along these lines that, we can ask, rightly, we can ask, why does God allow evil to exist in the world? 
But we, would, we could equally well as ask, why does God allow us to exist in the world considering all the evil that we do? For all too often, if human beings got what we deserved as the human species, it would be total destruction. God should just wipe us all out and start over again. And yet, what we receive instead is salvation. God warns and warns and warns us of how our actions uh, have devastating consequences. God encourages us over and over again with renewed life when we follow God's ways. And over and over again, we just blow right past the warnings, consider the blessings are right, and we deserve them, them, and we end up with devastation all around. And still, God loves us. Still, God saves us. God keeps us. God picks us up heals us, renews us, and continues to guide us. In other words, God saves us. When we acknowledge truthfully all of our human destruction, that's when we can most deeply appreciate God's salvation. It is cause for celebration, but a little solemnity as well. Thanks be to God.